We're going to make cuts, we're going to have to make difficult decisions. Public sector workers have had their wages frozen, local services have had to do more with less, and families felt the squeeze. More repairs, more cuts, more difficult decisions. For most of the decade, the Conservative government has said they want to cut government spending to balance the books as they rolled out austerity nationwide. But since the start of lockdown, something seems to have changed. The Chancellor keeps saying this is not the time for ideology as he announces new, expensive programmes to keep the economy afloat. We will not be responding to this crisis with what people call austerity. This is a time to be bold. A time for courage. The truth is that if there wasn't this action now, then the economy would absolutely grind to a halt. So, what's going on? It's not the first time that politicians have announced the end of austerity. But with the government paying the wages of up to a third of the UK workforce through the furlough scheme, has something shifted? Has the government truly moved beyond ideology? Will austerity be back, but by another name? And where does conservatism go from here? That's after the longest squeeze in living standards that our country has seen for eight generations, the slowest recovery it's seen after a financial crisis. That is something that we cannot repeat. In this episode of the Weekly Economics podcast, we're looking at the new politics of conservatism. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, we're joined down the line by Miata Fambula, Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Miata. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for being with us. And we're also joined by Miriam Brett, Director of Research and Advocacy at Commonwealth. Hi, Miriam. Hello. Okay, really excited to have both of you with me today to dive into this. So let's get some of the ideas straight before we begin. Traditionally, conservatives, as we know, have favoured what's called a more laissez-faire or hands-off economic approach. Miata, can you explain what that means? So traditionally, the theory goes that on the right of politics, so on the conservative side, there's a sort of sense that actually markets, so if we leave it to individuals and businesses just to crack on, uh, to do what they would do to kind of trade in terms of preferences, to buy, to sell, generally that means that the economy functions quite well. And that every time the state intervenes, the state tends to meddle, the state tends to distort, and actually it's better for the state to be as minimal as possible. That then translates into a view that government should spend less. So, you know, the corollary of not meddling as much is spending less. And actually, instead, Instead of government taxing a lot and then spending a lot, it's much better to ensure that individuals get to keep more of their money through lower taxation with the state and, if you like, the collective endeavour of being kept as small as possible. Okay. That makes sense. So now, with what's going on around COVID, between the paying the wages of furloughed workers, a public sector pay rise, and a partial nationalisation of the railways, are we seeing the government move away from that approach then? For now, <laughs> it's quite an extraordinary thing that's happening in our politics. And I think, what's the truth? The truth is that we are facing an economic crisis coming out of the pandemic that is the deepest economic crisis that we face for 300 years. So the depth of the recession, we're seeing the sharpest contraction we've seen uh, for centuries. And I think it's clear to the government here, but also governments across the world, that because we have essentially had to put our economies on freeze when many countries went under lockdown, that in order to get out of it, you've got to spend and you've got to invest. And, you know, 
know, I think the classic example of this is the government's furlough scheme, its job retention scheme. And you just wouldn't imagine many governments doing this. You certainly wouldn't imagine a conservative government doing this. They have essentially underwritten 80 percent of the wages of workers um, to the tune of 10 million workers and a couple million extra unemployed. And it's a massive, massive intervention. My, my view is I don't think the government had any choice. I think if the government had not acted, the impact not just on the economy, but on people's lives and livelihoods would have been absolutely catastrophic. Now, the big question is the government felt it needed to do this as an emergency response. It is now, if you like, taking the economy out of the deep freeze, starting to very rapidly ease lockdown. And so the big question is, does the assumption that the government needs to continue to intervene hold or will the government revert back to the old orthodoxy, which is, you know, we try to, yes, do some intervention, but we keep it as minimal as possible. I think the jury's still out. I think the government's facing pressure on both sides. Uh, so there are many people, including businesses and trade unions, saying you cannot step away. It will be disastrous and we won't recover. But then there are many on their side that are saying the cost of all of this, both in terms of, you know, the debt that we're accumulating, but also in terms of the level of state intervention is not sustainable, it is not right, and you've got to revert back to type. Um, and I think the government is probably in one heck of a moral dilemma at the moment about which side of the equation it goes on. Certainly. So we're going to talk a little bit more about where the government decides to go with that dilemma soon. But I wanted to come to you, Miriam, just to ask, as I said in the top, Rishi Sunak has said a few times now, this is not a time for ideology and orthodoxy. You know, we've had people like Andy Beckett and Christine Berry on the podcast in the past talking about this idea of, or lack thereof, a conservative ideology. Miriam, can you explain what he meant when he said that and whether you think the government has indeed moved away from an ideology? Certainly. I think the sheer scale of this crisis is unprecedented. And in that regard, to a certain extent, we have seen some departure from the usual approach to crisis management. So rather than intensifying flagging economic activity like we'd ordinarily see in the aftermath of a crisis, public policy deliberately created a rapid demobilisation of our economy. So in that regard, we have seen more intervention from this government. As Miata pointed out, the furlough scheme is a brilliant example of that. But on your question as to whether they've moved away from ideology more broadly, I think if we dig a little deeper at some of the nature of those interventions, it's clear that elements of status quo remain. So the first thing there is that the level of investment that we've seen, while greater than we've seen in the past is still insufficient. So if we take Boris Johnson's so-called New Deal as an example of that, it amounted to £5 billion. That's a mere 0.2% of 2019 GDP. That is only £1 billion more than the Palace of Westminster refurbishment. Next, we need to look at who is benefiting from the interventions. We need to ensure that these interventions don't just insulate creditors and asset owners, banks, landlords, people who already have wealth from the most adverse consequences of this devastating pandemic while others are facing hardship. And I think it's important to recognise on the subject of intervention that intervention in and of itself isn't always good and it isn't always enough. So 
The irony for me of a laissez-faire approach is that it often involves very costly state interventions. We only have to look to the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis to see that massive state interventions play a core component of that. It's just that those state interventions went to the bank. So where we go from here matters. So this is about ensuring that our interventions are in the interest of public good. They rest in the interest of public good. So refocusing more measures like attaching conditions to corporate bailouts, for example, to secure just taxes, to secure decent paying conditions, job security, climate commitments, as well as refocusing efforts, for example, away from tax breaks for people buying second homes and more towards banning evictions and rent freezes for tenants who are struggling. So I think it's about where those interventions go and and who they help. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. So I guess it's not a kind of intervention necessarily as a tool of, I guess, anti-traditional conservative ideology, but perhaps in this case, the opposite. I'm not sure. Okay, so let's talk about austerity. Some commenters have said that the new government spending on things like the furlough scheme and other things, you know, that we've mentioned so far on this call show that they've abandoned the austerity politics of the last 10 years. And then other people have said that we should actually be bracing ourselves for a fresh round of austerity, perhaps with a new sexy look, but it will still be austerity. What do you both think? Miata, let's start with you. So what I think is quite interesting is even before the pandemic, the government was in rhetoric terms anyway, moving away from austerity because it was proving deeply unpopular. We'd had 10 years in which essentially government had cut spending at every level. The impacts of that were starting to bite and bite pretty fiercely in communities and the public just no longer supported it. So I think the politics was driving it anyway. But what we saw was that the rhetoric was all about ending austerity. But the reality was that, you know, outside small increases in health, some movements in education, much of the public sector was still feeling the squeeze. And then the pandemic has come along. And, you know, to be fair to the government, it is spending and it is spending huge amounts. I don't think anyone can take that away from them. I think the big question now becomes the difference between emergency spending and steady state spending. Our view is that if you want to have certain things that you take as granted, if you want to have services that we provide collectively, if you want to have decent functioning health, social care, education, you name it, that actually makes sense for us to invest and tax in order to invest. And when you compare our level of taxation versus other countries in Europe, it's nowhere near high. So actually, there was lots of scope for us to think about how we can have a better balance between taxation and spending. I think the big question is coming out of this, where there will be huge pressures on the public finances from where the government is standing, is does it say, actually, we've learned the lessons of the last 10 years and austerity and cutting is a self-defeating strategy and policy because you cut now and you store up problems in the long term. This is what we've seen in the last 10 years. It neither did the job of steadying the economy, which is what it was trying to do, i.e. we get the debt burden down, uh, we manage the public finances, and that enables the economy to work well because it creates investor confidence and other things. And that didn't really happen. And if you compare the UK to, say, the US, that opted to spend and invest, opted for a fiscal stimulus way of getting out of the financial crisis and the recession that ensued, that was a far better strategy than our strategy of cutting. But then there is also the kind of social impact of it. But in the end, 
that cost us down the line. So it kind of made no sense on any front. And I hope they've learned the lesson in the last 10 years. I think the real worry is that the old instinct kicks in and they don't talk about austerity, but we see measures that essentially maintain, and it's maintaining because there are still parts of the public sector that are still feeling the squeeze. And at the moment, it's not clear where the government will land because there are things that they're doing that feels quite worrying, but yet they're talking about the language of spending. I suspect they haven't quite made up their own mind about what their strategy is, but if they follow the logic of the last 10 years, austerity should be the last thing that they reach for. So just a quick follow-up on that, Miata, before I come to you, Miriam. The point of debt that you raised, Rishi Sunak has borrowed money to pay for the income support schemes and things like that. Does that suggest that the government is less concerned with reducing debt than it has been in the past? Uh, so I think the thing that the government's realised is that interest rates are at historical low levels. And so the irony is, at the same time that you know the deficit is growing, actually the cost of financing that deficit is at the lowest it's been since records began. And so if ever you were going to borrow in in order to invest, this is absolutely the time to do it. And the key thing for me is some people say, well, you know, interest rates are low now, but they're not going to be low forever. Well, all the indications are interest rates are going to be low for a very long time. And even if they weren't, the borrowing that the government is doing at pretty much zero and sometimes negative interest rates at the moment most of that gets locked in. So, you know, the interest rates that we pay for everything we borrow now, two thirds of it stays at that rate. So if ever you wanted to borrow to do stuff, this is the time to do it. And the burden for future generations is no higher because we're never going to get it so well in terms of our capacity to borrow. That makes sense. Miriam, same question. And also in particular, I was wondering about the public sector pay rise. Does that indicate a kind of loosening of the purse strings? Um, No, more broadly, I'm in agreement with Miata here that I think the government doesn't quite know where it stands on this just yet. And I think time will tell as to whether they will embark on a new approach and recognise the failure of the last financial crisis, recognise that austerity was an unmitigated disaster, or whether they will default in a moment of panic, in a moment of crisis, to an almost sort of comfort zone for them of crisis management. I think what's clear is that austerity as a word, as a doctrine, has become toxic. People know it didn't work. They saw the devastation it caused. So it's maybe unsurprising then that this government is keen to disassociate itself with everything that austerity is, with everything that it's done. But certainly we need to be mindful here that somebody saying austerity is over is not the same as austerity being over. And I think there have been a few kind of warning signs for me that could indicate that they might choose the wrong response here in the longer term. So the first was the response to the borrowing figures. And we saw a kind of fresh wave of panic. But as Miata pointed out, we've got historically low borrowing costs just now. The second one in sign for me was discussion around public sector workers maybe facing a fresh squeeze on pay. And many of these people are key workers who we're indebted to for keeping us safe. And of course, we're seeing the usual suspects come out and champion the approach of austerity. We've already seen George Osborne call for a fresh round of austerity. But as Miata rightly highlighted, this was an unmitigated disaster. We saw life expectancy 
stall. We saw a decade of lost wages for workers. We saw soaring rates of poverty, of hunger, of fuel poverty, and we saw dire living standards. So really, for me, the response to the last financial crisis should act as a template almost for exactly what not to do here. So let's talk about that response for a second. The UK has been forecast to have the worst economic hit of any OECD country this year. How do you both think the impending recession will affect government decisions? And talking about, you know, the 2008 crisis when spending was cut and that really hurt the UK's recovery. Do you think the government will have learned from that and won't do it again? Well, if they were logical, then yes, definitely. I don't think you can look at the evidence and facts and think you need to rerun what we did coming out of the financial crisis. I think the thing that I always reach to is that, you know, we we had 10 years where living standards did not improve. So we went into the pandemic with living standards being no higher than they were in 2008. That is an absolute catastrophic failure on any economic terms. Throw around whatever figures you want. In the end, the success of the economy is the extent to which it makes people's lives better. And it failed to do that. So if they look at that simple fact, I don't think you can rerun the same economic prescriptions. But I mean, the nature of this particular crisis, there is no way in which we are going to come anywhere near a recovery unless we have a scale of intervention that is even bigger than the emergency intervention that has gone in. So the government talks the language of fiscal stimulus, and Miriam is completely right. We heard the language of a new deal. The rhetoric was great. We loved it. And then it kind of amounted to a rehashing of old spending commitments, no bigger than $5 billion. And so for me, I think there is a need to kind of just recognize the scale of the crisis that we're in, recognize that if the government is serious about a fiscal stimulus, it needs to be thinking about a much greater magnitude. And the comparison I always do is the measure on the kind of green energy efficiency package was great in spirit, but the total value of it was about $3 billion. Now, the analysis that we've done at NEF suggested that it needed to be closer to $28.3 billion, and that would have unlocked about 400,000 jobs in the next 18 months, which is exactly the sort of things that the government needs to do with the prospect of mass unemployment facing us. So I think there will be a reckoning. I think, to be honest, the government is hoping that as soon as it eases the restrictions and it eases lockdown and sectors start operating again, that everything will be okay. But all the signs and indications are that that is not going to happen. The Office of Budget Responsibility has now come out saying that we won't recover back to pre-pandemic levels if we're lucky until the end of 2022. And I think that might be optimistic. So I think come in the autumn and when the kind of unemployment figures start rising. We're already seeing firm after firm announcing the fact that they're going to have to make people redundant. I think the government is going to have to redouble its effort and put in place a proper fiscal stimulus to not just get us back to any old recovery, but to get us back to something better. They've taken on the mantra of build back better, something that we're advocating along others. If they are serious about that, that requires us to reimagine the sorts of intervention coming out of government in order to do the job of both rebalancing our economy in a way that we haven't achieved before, but to deal with poverty, inequality, as well as a massive challenge of climate change. So that is a pretty big undertaking with a really tough context. And business as usual is going to get us nowhere near where we need to be. 
Mm. So we've talked about public spending and cuts, and I want to circle back to that point you just made, Miata, around the Build Back Better campaign. But a question on this section that I had for you, Miriam, the one about tax, I think it was you who mentioned it earlier. So has the government made any changes to the tax system so far? And what do you think we might see coming down the pipe? We have seen some changes to the tax system. For example, Rishi Sunak's speech, the mini budget announced a series of changes such as changes to VAT for the hospitality sector, for example, and changes to stamp duty for people looking to buy homes. I think in the longer term, though, we need to really reimagine what tax is, what its purpose is, what it serves as a mechanism in society, and look at tax more broadly as a means to redistribute wealth throughout our society. Because what we have just now, particularly after a decade of very brutal austerity, is huge gaps between the rich and the poor. And secondly, I think we need to look at tax as a means to tackle the climate crisis. And that doesn't mean siphoning off specific climate taxes. That means looking at integrating climate into every aspect as a lens for kind of reimagining our tax system. And I think if we put those two and two together to look at tax as a mechanism for redistribution and a means of tackling the climate crisis, we could emerge from this crisis much stronger. Okay, so let's talk about that then, about how we emerge. So there's a big campaign, which has already been mentioned, that both your organisations are part of, calling for the government to build back better after the COVID crisis and use this moment as an opportunity to fix some of the problems with our economy, which we've been talking about at length. Miata, could you explain at a high level kind of what build back better means? Yeah, so I mean, I think the aspiration is that we use this moment of crisis to rebuild the economy in a better way that tackles, I think, many of the deep-seated and long-standing problems with the economy that have really been exposed through the pandemic. So the inequality, insecurity at work, the fact that we don't pay some of the people that do some of the most valuable work for us as a society, our key workers, sufficiently, that reflects the contribution that they make to society. And so... The aspiration is like, let's not just recover back to the old normal that was so broken. Let's try and do something better. And I think there's sort of three things that sit underneath that. I think the first is that there has to be a new social settlement coming out of this that looks to protect people through well-resourced public services. And for me, health, social care, things like childcare and housing are absolutely critical, as well as social security. I think just how completely inadequate our social security safety net is at the moment is something that is patently clear and obvious for everyone to see, and that has to be addressed. I think the second is tackling inequality between people and places. And one aspect of that being creating good, decent, well-paid, secure jobs against the backdrop of increasing unemployment. And then the final piece is preparing in a way that we just were not prepared for this pandemic, for if you like the bigger crisis that is here upon us, which is climate change. And so I think those three components are absolutely fundamental to the aspiration to build back better. And if we can put our collective resource and government can act in a way that it has not acted before, because I think it requires unprecedented action, in order to do that, then we have the hope that something better comes out of this absolutely horrendous crisis. Okay, so from what I've heard, last month, Boris Johnson pledged billions for the UK to build back better and bolder. So Miriam, do you reckon that that means the government has taken up the challenge and they're on board with all the things Miata just said? I hope so. I hope it goes beyond rhetoric. Because if ever there was a moment for re-evaluation, it's now, you know, we face 
compounding crises. We face an inequality crisis. We face an economic crisis. We face a devastating public health crisis, and we face a climate crisis. And for me, the, the climate crisis, you know, it changes everything because of the time frame of it. We have less than a decade to avoid irreversible climate breakdown, and doing so necessitates fundamental shifts in how our economy operates. And in the face of all of that, small wins for progressives, while admirable, are insufficient because we need a systems change. This is a system in crisis. And one of the key challenges for me to achieving this is understanding how this form of capitalism insulates itself and shields itself from change. And I think we can't be naive about what we're up against here because we have an economy that funnels wealth and power to the hands of a few and they'll work hard to retain that system that ultimately benefits them. But this crisis has revealed deep fractures in our economy that long predate it. The insecurity of our labour market, for example, the inadequacy, as Miata mentioned, of childcare support, the scandal of low pay, the insufficiency of an underfunded social security system. For me, there's reason to be hopeful here because there is an appetite for change. Only 6% of the public in the UK want to see a return to the same type of economy as prior to the pandemic. And nearly 70% of people want urgent action to tackle climate change and protect our natural environment. So I think the question remains as to whether the government will listen and will roll out the largest green stimulus package possible, taking advantage of those historically low borrowing costs just now and really actually reorientate our economy to work in the interests of everyone, to work in the interests of our climate and to provide a sustainable future for everyone. Yeah, I mean, that touches on my next question, which was how should progressives respond and how do we fight on these issues when the government claims they're tackling them already? You know, I've heard people say that the government is quite incoherent when it comes to policy and that it's governing by press release instead. So how does this affect the tactics that we should use when it comes to influencing them in the ways that you've both mentioned? Well, I think the really interesting thing that's happening is where public opinion is. And out of this pandemic, I think there is a consensus, which I think was building anyway, that things needed to change, that the economy wasn't working for most people. And I think the way the pandemic has just blown that up has meant that actually the debate, even across the political spectrum, has really shifted. And you know, you have commentators that traditionally you would think are on the right of the spectrum saying things that, quite frankly, you know, I say all the time. So I think that we are at a moment of consensus that something is broken, the old normal is broken, that there are long-standing problems that we just can't continue sweeping underneath the carpet and we have to respond to them. And for me, that's the moment of opportunity because I don't think this government is particularly ideological. I think this government is pragmatic and ruthless about winning. I think they are very, very focused on winning those seats that took off Labour. And I think that completely then changes the political game. And if you can find a way of, if you like, amplifying where I think the public are, giving it voice, giving it power and expression, making it incredibly hard for the government to ignore the politics of that, that's the way in which we start shifting them. I don't think we win them by hearts and minds because I think some of this stuff they may or may not believe, I don't know. 
But I think if the public are firmly in the space of change, if the public are firmly in the space of action on climate change, if the public are firmly in the space of bolstering up our social protections, the government will respond because the politics will warrant it. And I think that's the opportunity that we cannot miss on the progressive side, because if we can galvanize public opinion and find ways of working in a coordinated way, because I think one of the big risks is that you have lots of good, well-meaning people arguing and fighting for this stuff, but we do it in a really disjointed, fragmented way that's not harnessing the public mood, the power and pressure and political pressure that's building up. If we can do that in a coordinated way and tap into that, I think that's how we start breaking up the politics here and forging a consensus. And for me, it has to be a consensus so that it kind of doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum is in power. There are just some things that are taken as gospel in the way that the NHS is now something that people will play around in the margins, but no one disputes or refutes the need to have a national health service free at the point of use funded through general taxation. Same thing we need on social care, same thing on childcare. We need proper protections in terms of social security. We need radical action on climate change and climate breakdown. And we need radical action to tackle inequality. And I want to see every side of the political spectrum say, yes, this is the new settlement. This is the new common sense. And then for us that want to go further, we build from there. But we shouldn't be fighting around these core fundamental things that the times demands. I think the politics demands. I think the public desperately want. Okay, so let's finish with this point on the public then, because what I'm really interested in hearing from both of you more about is is where you think the public are actually at now in terms of how they've been impacted or shifted as a result of the kind of intersection between COVID-19 and the government's response, you know, be that intervention and austerity under a new name or whatever it is, however we want to frame their response. So I guess kind of what I'm asking is, do you think now we're in a time where there is more acceptance that government intervention is a good thing and do you think that's enough I guess I'll leave it there and just throw it over to both of you I think very few people want to see a return to normal I think there's a glimmer of hope that that presents that the public is on board with change here and that's true to a certain degree across political parties as well and we've even seen the likes of the Financial Times calling for a radical new approach to government intervention. I think more broadly, there is an unpredictability to this government, as Miata highlighted, that wasn't true of previous administrations. And I think there rests opportunity there. If we look back, for example, to the Cameron Osborne era, the ideological drive was clear and their decisions and their public policy agenda, for example, was more predictable in that sense than it is today with this administration. And for me, there rests hope in that desire for change and with a government that is perhaps less ideologically driven and more kind of orientated towards a drive to win and to be popular. If there is an appetite for change that exists, that we know does exist, I hope that the government will listen to that and will respond to it accordingly. Mm, I like the sound of that. Miata, what do you reckon? I don't know, I think, is the answer. The public have been well ahead of, I think, politics for some time. So if you think about something like public ownership, which, you know, was a dirty word across the political spectrum for a really long time, actually, the public have been massively supportive of that for quite some time. So I think public opinion is definitely in the space of the need for governments to intervene, to invest, to act in our collective interests. They want to be able to hold governments to account better. I definitely think they're there and it hasn't always filtered into our politics. 
I think that is changing. But what's going to be really interesting over the next two years is, you know, how the government starts to define itself and its programme. Because I think they're listening to that. And I think for me, that is a glimmer of hope if we can continue applying pressure and mobilising to kind of reflect and amplify public opinion. But they will be under pressure to revert back to some of the old normal from other quarters. And who wins that fight, I think, will be the test of history we'll see. Think about the measures that they have announced. The New Deal, they ate the language of Roosevelt, of intervention, at the same time as leaning really heavily into planning reform, assuming that all you need to do is deregulate that part of the market, then everything will be okay. So they're trying to straddle both sides because they're not clear about what their philosophical program that will underpin their program of government. And I think as they battle through that and there will be voices on either side telling them different things, that will determine what they do. I think that creates a really interesting space for our politics because where do the other opposition parties go in that? How do they define themselves against this moment? And actually who uses the opportunity of this point of chasm to say there has to be a new economic and social settlement and it looks like this. We want to see something that takes us on a path closer to a new economy. Which side of the political spectrum is brave enough and will have the boldness and the clarity of vision to sell that and to sell that to the electorate? Because I think the side that can do that will win in political terms. But at the moment, if you like, the old normal is dying and different parties are trying to figure out what the new normal is that speaks to what the public want, but also can set out a vision that people can believe will both happen as well as that people find desirable. And that's why our politics is so fascinating and also very, very terrifying because, you know, you desperately hope that we can get everything aligned so that the powers that be take the right course. But I think at this moment in time, it's all up for grabs. Well, that's an exciting note to end on. It's so funny you say the point about the old is dying and the new is yet to be born. I feel like we've been in an interregnum since we started this podcast. That's kind of where we live. And I'm like, this new normal is way overdue. It needs to be now. And as you say, it seems like if it's not now, then when would it be? Okay, that is sadly all we've got time for this week. But thank you both so much for joining me, starting with you. Miata, if people want to find out more about your work and what you do, where can they go? What should they Uh, So go to the New Economics Foundation website and you will see all the amazing work that the team are doing, both around COVID and how we respond to COVID in a way that helps us build back better, but also the long-standing work that we have been doing trying to point out that the economy just does not work for people, just doesn't work for the planet, and that we need something radically different if we are going to do the job of creating an economy that improves living standards and looks after our planet. What can be more important than that? Well, something tells me our listeners will be on board with that and we'll all be rushing to the website as we speak. And Miriam Brett of Commonwealth, thanks so much to you as well. If people want to find out more, where can they go? Head to Commonwealth's website. So we've got a series of programmes at the moment looking at areas such as the COVID-19 response, Green New Deal and democratic public ownership. Fantastic. Again, I'm sure there'll be big hits with our listeners. That's it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, lovely, lovely listener, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>